in this section where we're at in the book of Revelation is, is absolutely incredible. And Lord, I pray that we would be teachable. And it's telling us something. That as these events, as John was told to write these things down, that will come to pass. Not that they might come to pass. They will come to pass. And so, Lord, as we see the, what's going to take place um, in this period of time that is called the tribulation period, that we see the rumblings around this that point to the soon return of Jesus Christ, the signs, the, the things that are taking place that is, is telling us that Jesus Christ is coming soon. He's coming for his church. And I pray our hearts would be stirred because Jesus said, when you begin to see these things come to pass, look up and rejoice for your redemption draws near. So Lord, teach us and help us be attentive and be watching as we are commanded by our Lord to be waiting because uh, you come when we least expect and an hour we do not know. And Lord, as we are looking for the return of the Lord, that it may cause there, as John writes in his epistle, a purity in our hearts as we have this hope of seeing you. And Lord, it affects every area of our lives and how we live. So Lord, we look forward to talking about these things. And, and Lord, we look forward to um, the promises that you've given to us that will be fulfilled for us. And so Lord, um, we give this time in the study of your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 11, we're halfway through the book of Revelation. Chapter 11 is marking the halfway point. But we also are going to be looking chronologically at the halfway point of the tribulation period. That tribulation period, of course, is that final seven-year period right before the second coming of Jesus Christ, where God is pouring out his wrath in a Christ-rejected world. We've seen the sealed judgments and the trump judgments. Matter of fact, chapter 11, we're going to see the seventh trumpet that's going to, to be blown. And when the angel blows the seventh trumpet, then seven more angels are going to stand up with vials or bowls and they're with the wrath of God. And they're going to be pouring out judgment on uh, a world that has rejected Christ. And God is dealing not only with the Christ-rejected world, but he's also during this time, and I think that the next couple chapters are really going to emphasize this, that God is dealing with the nation. He's dealing with the nation of Israel. And we're going to see that clearly as we go through this chapter. It's going to tell us about uh, the ministry of the two witnesses. Um, Again, the seventh trumpet being blown in chapter 12, how Israel is going to be persecuted in the tribulation period. But Keep in mind that, and I want to reiterate that in Daniel chapter 9, the last four verses of Daniel chapter 9 are very important, critical for us to understand the end time scenario. And everything must fit into the timeline that was given to Daniel by Gabriel in that prophecy that's called the 70 weeks of Daniel. We've gone over it very carefully. If you're not familiar with that prophecy, you can uh, download the, the latest teaching that I did on it uh, as we covered it when we opened up chapter 6 of the book of Revelation several weeks ago. Because chapter 6, that seven seal scroll is, begins to be opened up. And that begins the tribulation period from chapter 6 through chapter 19 is given us the description of what is called Daniel's 70th week or what we call the tribulation period. And keep in mind that Daniel 
world, when it was coming to the end of the Babylonian captivity, he's praying to the Lord. He knows that the 70 years of captivity are just about over. And Gabriel shows up and says, Daniel, I'm here to give you understanding and, and to give you prophecy. I'm going to give you understanding, not about the 70 years, but about 70 weeks. And he says this, that no one understand, Daniel, concerning your people, that is the people of Israel, and your holy city that the culmination of everything is going to take place in 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven years. And the prophecy goes on, and, and, and Daniel know this, that 69 weeks or 69 periods of seven years are going to occur between the time that the command is given to rebuild and restore uh, Jerusalem until coming of Messiah the Prince. So you can go to Nehemiah chapter 2. Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah the command to rebuild Jerusalem, the streets and the walls around Jerusalem. And so we can count 483 years, 173,880 days. And we come to that point where coming to Messiah the Prince, where Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And the people are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you remember that it was the religious leaders, as they knew that the people were ascribing to him the title of, of Messiah, that they were saying, tell your disciples, be quiet. This is blasphemy. And Jesus said that if they are silent, the very rocks will cry out. And Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he said, you did not know the day of your visitation. You should have known the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. Well, Messiah is going to be cut off. He would be crucified later in the week. And then there's a gap. There's still a seven-year period. 69 weeks have passed. But 70 weeks are determined for your people, Daniel, and for your holy city. So there's been a gap of 2,000 years now called the church age. And there's going to be that final seven-year period that we know is the tribulation period that God is going to be dealing with the nation of Israel once again. They are going to be a focal point. And we've talked about the, the prophecy, that amazing prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 quite extensively as we've gone through the scriptures. And the tribulation period, here's the thing to remember, is the most documented period of time in the Bible. And in the middle of the tribulation period, there is something very interesting that happens, a number of things, uh, quite incredible that's going to take place, but yet quite disturbing as well. And it ties in what we're going to be reading about in chapter 11, and in chapter 12, and also in chapter 13. So chapter 11, now keep in mind that we are in between the sixth trumpet blast and the seventh trumpet blast. We'll see the seventh trumpet blast at the end of the chapter. We won't get to it tonight. But you recall that in chapter 8, the first four trumpets sounded by four angels bringing the judgment of God down on a Christ-rejected world. And then an angel would uh, proclaim, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the three trumpets. And in chapter 9, we saw the fifth and the sixth trumpet sound, and the result was some very intense, very serious demonic things that were happening. Chapter 10 begins, as we saw last time, with this divine intermission and, and the vision of the mighty angel declaring that there should be delay no longer. In other words, that the Lord's coming back. 
that the culmination of things are going to take place. So now we are in that period of time of the last three and a half years as we find ourselves in the middle of the tribulation period that is called the Great Tribulation Period. And in this chapter is we're going to see the ministry of the two witnesses that were ministering in the first half of the tribulation period. Matter of fact, there are those who will come along and say, well, the first half of the tribulation period is a utopia and there's peace and all of this. Well, what we're going to read are these two witnesses that when they end up dying, that the people are going to rejoice and celebrate because of the torment that they brought to the inhabitants of the earth. So it doesn't sound like it was such a great party during the first three and a half years. Plus, as we've discussed, if you look at chapter 6 and go through, and if you look at it chronologically, there's some heavy things that are taking place. So here at the midway point, we see that John, again, let me read it to you, was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, now, there are those scholars that believe that this perhaps is the same angel that was in chapter 10, and there's a debate. Is that Jesus, or is it a mighty angel? Go back and listen to that teaching. But the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. And it's interesting. He said something that, that we don't want to, to ignore or we don't want to, to uh, consider at least. He says, Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So that's three and a half years. You see that term, 42 two months, 1,260 days, three and a half years as the tribulation period is, is divided up, the last half, uh, the great tribulation uh, in that time frame. Maybe it's written in the King James, I believe, times, uh, a time, which is a year, times, two years, and a half times. So that's all in reference to three and a half years. And John is told to measure the temple, the altar, and its worship, you know, a worshiper, and measure with a reed, and a reed is just, it's a measuring rod. Um, uh, it's a stick. Uh, approximately, some have suggested 10 feet. Told to measure the temple. Now remember, as we find ourselves in the middle of the tribulation period, John told to measure the temple in the holy city. There's only one holy city in God's word. And that is Jerusalem. This is not the temple in Salt Lake City, all right? When you talk to Mormons, seriously, when you talk to Mormons, they will come along and say, well, we're the only church that has a temple. Um, well, uh, here we know that it's talking about the temple in Jerusalem, and it's not in Salt Lake. It's not the Vatican in Rome. And John is not told to measure uh, those, but told to measure the temple in the holy city here, which would be Jerusalem. Now, we know that today there is no temple, is there? So it tells us that at this point, there's going to be a temple that's going to be in Jerusalem. Now, as we look at the temple in the Old Testament, we know that it played a key role uh, throughout the Old Testament in the religious life of the Jews. It started with the tabernacle out in the wilderness. As Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And there they received the Ten Commandments. God made a covenant with them. And then also, what we see that he began to 
to tell Moses, he initiated, he said, Moses, uh, I want you to take an offering from the people uh, and all the, you know, gold and silver and other things and build a tabernacle that I might meet with my people. So Moses was shown the pattern of the tabernacle that would be there in the wilderness. And as you read the book of Exodus, you see how the tabernacle was constructed. The book of Leviticus tells us the ministry of the priests, how they would give the sacrifices. All that is spelled out as he begins to give them not only the civil laws, uh, but he gave them the religious laws and the, the sacrifices and how they were to worship and the tabernacle and all of this. It was a temporary building. That is, it was made of animal skins and cords and pegs and boards and, and all of this. And when the children of Israel set up camp, that tabernacle was in the middle of camp. Keep in mind that Numbers tells us that the children of Israel, that they camped in orderly ranks. And you can read about that in, in chapter 2 of the book of Numbers. When that pillar of cloud or the pillar of, of fire would move, uh, then they would pack up and they would leave in orderly ranks and the tabernacle would be folded up and the Levites, the three families of the Levites, Numbers chapter 4, would have very specific instructions in what they were to do in carrying the pegs and the boards and, and the curtains. And then the family of Koah, they were to uh, take the furnishings once that Aaron and his sons covered them all up. So all that was part of the tabernacle there in the wilderness. They come into the, the promised land finally after 40 years. The tabernacle comes in. And during that time, from the time they come into the promised land, begin to take the, uh, the promised land, the book of Joshua. You go through those historical books uh, to the time of David, the tabernacle moved to different places. Well, of course, David wanted to build a, a temple for God. He says, here I am dwelling in this palace in the city of David, and the Lord's in a tent. And the Lord said, David, you're not going to build the temple. Your hands are bloodied. Your son Solomon is going to build the temple. So Solomon would come along and and it's interesting, you don't want to miss the last chapter of 2 Samuel in chapter 24, when David took a census of the people that God would, of course, bring a plague to the people, and David would go and sacrifice, um, you know, at that time, and David had sin in counting the people. We don't have time to go into why that, you know, he sinned, but it was he was prideful. He, he was trying to count the people and look how big my army is and how strong I am, rather than trusting in the Lord. So this plague comes, and it is David that goes to the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, and, and he asked to buy that threshing floor that was out on Mount Moriah, and Arana said, I'll give it to you, David. And you might remember that David said, no, I am not going to take that which will cost me nothing for the Lord. So he buys it, and he sacrificed there, and the Lord accepted the sacrifice. And he did the burnt offerings and, and the other sacrifices that you read about there. So they knew that when they built the temple, you go into 1 Kings, that that is where the temple would be built, on Mount Moriah, the threshing floor of Arana, uh, and remember that when they went into the promised land, the Lord said, I will prescribe to you, I will tell you where the sacrifices are supposed to be, the, the place. Don't just go and sacrifice anywhere. So Solomon begins to build the, sec the first temple, magnificent building, 30,000 workers 
for seven years are working up in Lebanon, cutting down the cedar trees and, and floating them down the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa, and then they would bring it up to Jerusalem. There were 70,000 that were working at the temple site, 80,000 workers in the quarries cutting the stones. First Kings chapter 6 says all the chiseling, all the hammering of the stones was done in the quarry to where there wasn't a sound of the hammer on site where the temple, where the stones were being put together and the temple was being built. Absolutely amazing. And there was 3,300 supervisors. So it was, was a magnificent temple overlaid with gold and all of this. And, and you see that temple would stand for all those years from the time of Solomon. And as you go through First and Second Kings and as you go through Second Chronicles, uh, that time of the kings of Judah, clear up until the time where they would go off into captivity. And you remember that it was Hezekiah who was a good king. You read about it in Isaiah chapter 39 that it was the envoys that came from Babylon and Hezekiah showed them all the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And, and Isaiah comes along and says, who were they? Well, they're envoys from a faraway little place called Babylon. This is 120 years, about 720 B.C., you know, 115 years before they would go off into captivity. And, and what did you show them, Hezekiah, Isaiah says? I showed them everything. And Isaiah gives the prophecy that the day is going to come when Babylon is going to come and take your choice men away into captivity and take everything away in, in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And that happened in 605 B.C., the first wave of captivity. Daniel and his friends are taken off into captivity. And then a second wave of captivity, 597 B.C., where Ezekiel was taken off into captivity, he would then begin to prophesy. And then the final and third wave of captivity were never... Nebuchadnezzar comes and he, because Judah rebelled, and he destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed Solomon's temple, and, and it would lay in rubble. Well, the 70 years of captivity come to an end as Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians who overtook Babylon, gave the decree that Zerubbabel and Joshua, you the high priest, you can take uh, uh, people back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that's what they did. So they rebuilt the temple, the second temple. It was called Zerubbabel's temple at that time. It was not as grand, grand as the first temple, uh, but the Lord honored it. And as that temple stood for that amount of time, um, you know, from about 516 uh, B.C., clear up until 20 B.C., right before Jesus was born, here comes a man called Herod the Great. You know about him. You read about him in the scriptures. He was called the Great because he was a great builder. He wanted to destroy and tear down the second temple and make a grand temple. And the religious leaders said, please don't do that. But he reminded the second temple to where it became a magnificent building. He expanded the courtyards where thousands of people would come. And that work began in, in 20 B.C., before Jesus was born. It would continue until the workers were dismissed in 63 A.D. It stood for seven years, completed, until Titus and the Roman legions surrounded Jerusalem 
They broke through the walls of Jerusalem. You might remember that in Matthew's gospel and Mark and Luke, the synoptic gospels and what is called the Olivet Discourse, that Jesus and the disciples were looking at the magnificent stones, the Herodian stones of the second temple. It, it was magnificent. It was one of the, the seven wonders of the world at that time. And Jerusalem was called the golden city because they used stones that looked kind of that golden color, but also he overlaid the temple, the second temple with gold to where you're on the Mount of Olives and you're looking down at that temple that as the sun came up behind you, that it hit the gold and the reflection was so bright you had to turn away. The golden city, magnificent temple. Jesus said the time's going to come when not one stone's going to be left upon another. And the disciples were floored. He leaves, he goes across Kidron Valley up on the Mount of Olives, and he gives that address. They said, when is this going to happen, the destruction of the temple, and what is the sign of your coming? What is the end of the age? Because they equate it, if that temple is destroyed, it's got to be the end of the age. So Jesus then gives the second longest sermon, I believe, next to the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, as he tells them about the signs, and you can read that, and we've covered it again in our studies before. 70 AD, exactly as Jesus said, not one stone was left upon another. That the Romans came in, the temple got set on fire, that they began as the gold melted down uh, the temple, they began to tear the temple apart to get to the gold. And you can get to the recent excavations of Jerusalem to where they found this road that follows right along the western wall that I'm going to show you a picture of it in just a minute that was the retaining wall of the temple and where the Romans took the stones of the temple and threw it over the wall down into the street you can see it today exactly as jesus said so there has not been a temple for 2,000 years and it's interesting and i'll tie it in hopefully i'll get to it tonight to tonight's study in the olivet discourse in luke's gospel that jesus would say that when you see jerusalem surrounded by armies then know that its desolation is near then let those who are in judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her for these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled and woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive to all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Keep that in mind. Tuck that in the back of your mind as we go back to our text here tonight where he says that they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. But Jesus said that Jerusalem, destruction's going to come. You're going to be taken captive to all the nations. And for 2,000 years, the Jews were out of their homeland. There's always been Jews that have been there, a remnant of them, but they were no longer a nation. There has not been a temple in Israel for 2,000 years. And then all of a sudden, a miracle happened. May 14, 1948. The British mandate is the British said, we're going to leave this land called Palestine is what it was called by a lot of people. And uh, they came up with the plan that uh, the, half the land over here will be called Palestine and, and this part will be called Israel. Uh, the Arab nations around Israel told the Palestinians, do not accept that plan. 
because we're going to push the Jews into the sea. We will destroy them. So they said, no, Israel, the Jews that were coming out of the ashes of the Holocaust, they're coming back into their land as they were coming into that place. We know that uh, all of a sudden that, that they are there in their original homeland. And all of a sudden, when the last British soldier leaves, that Ben-Gurion, he declares independence, uh, the, the state of Israel. And all of a sudden, we get the approval of President Truman, who would approve the, the state of Israel, and a nation was birthed. Isaiah 66, can a nation be birthed in one day? An absolute miracle not heard of in the history of mankind that a group of people come back to their original homeland after 2,000 years that was told by the scriptures and the prophets of old. Even Jesus, he said that you're going to be led away captive to all the nations. But he would also say as he wept over Jerusalem that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He gives reference that you're going to come back and a day is going to come when you're going to recognize me as Messiah at the end of the tribulation period when it looks like they're about ready to go down. And we know that uh, it is Paul. We talked about it in Romans chapter 11. He says at that time, all of Israel will be saved. But there hasn't been a temple. So 1948, they become a nation. Half of Jerusalem, the east part of Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount was, uh, the, the holy site there, where the Dome of the Rock is, where Solomon's temple stood, where Herod's temple stood, that was under jo Jordanian rule. It was the, the country of Jordan that uh, sovereignly ruled over East Jerusalem. Matter of fact, when we go to Jerusalem, they have what is called the Green Line, and the western part of Jerusalem belonged to Israel. The eastern part of Jerusalem, which included the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives, uh, that all belonged to Jordan. And, and we'll show you that. Matter of fact, the hotel that we stayed was right on the Green Line, maybe 100 yards. We were in that area that was once called Jordan. Well, all of a sudden, the Six-Day War breaks out, and the Israeli Defense Forces take East Jerusalem. They capture all that all the way to the Jordan River. And for the very first time in 2,000 years, the Jews are ruling over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, another miracle of God. Something interesting happened. As they would take over East Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount was, all of a sudden it, it was just uh, an, an incredible, joyous victory uh, that the Jews, they knew that God was working somehow, and they thought, maybe we can build our temple. But what happened was, is that Temple Mount that I'm going to show to you, that the Jews allowed Moshe Dayan, the Israeli general, said, you can control, you, you can rule over where the Dome of the Rock is as a gesture of peace over that Temple Mount. So since that time, that has been under the rule of the Muslims, and they rule over that Temple Mount, the most disputed you know, piece of property in the whole world. So the Jews come to the Western Wall to worship, but they will not go up on the Temple Mount because that's ruled by the Muslims, where Solomon's temple stood, where, where Herod's temple was. So all of a sudden, we're being told here there's going to be a temple that's going to be rebuilt. Interesting, isn't it? 
The Antichrist, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, tells us that when he comes on the scene, that he's going to make a covenant with Israel, confirm a covenant, make a, a covenant, seems like a peace treaty, for that final seven-year period, which seems to allow that the Jews can rebuild their temple. So John's telling us, measure the temple. There's going to be a temple there in Jerusalem. And here's the interesting thing that as we read it, because I want to say this, um, that in Ephesians chapter 2, when you read it, Paul describes the church as a temple. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, he writes, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Peter writes that we're living stones being fitted together in a holy habitation. You can read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 21, and then also 1 Peter chapter 2. So people, some look at this, particularly those of replacement theology or the preterist view, and they say this temple, is, this temple here of chapter 11 is symbolic of the church. And I strongly disagree with that. Why would it be measured? What is the significance of the court and the altar? If the church itself is the altar, who are those who are worshiping there? There is too much specific detail here to say that we can only see this as a general picture of the church. Plus, I believe that the church is going to be in heaven before chapter 6, the tribulation period, begins. And we've gone over that quite extensively again. But we also know that other parts of Scripture, Daniel chapter 9, that as the Antichrist makes that covenant with the Jews, in the middle of the week, at this point of the tribulation period, he's going to break that covenant with the Jews, and the sacrifices and the offerings come to an end. Daniel chapter 11 tells us that the Antichrist will defile the temple by setting up an image of himself. Paul reiterates that in 2 Timothy, uh, Thessalonians, that is chapter 2 in verses 3 and 4 he says that the Antichrist that he's going to go into the temple of God he's going to exalt himself as God to be worshipped as God so Paul talks about that there's going to be a temple at the time of the Antichrist Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse that when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel, then flee, get out of there, don't go and gather your things. Uh, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath because on the Sabbath, transportation stops. Pray it isn't in the winter. Woe to nursing mothers at that time. Jesus said that something terrible is going to happen, trouble like the world has never seen before. Michael would show Daniel that vision of the great tribulation, Daniel chapter 12, that trouble like the nation has never seen before. So I think to spiritualize the temple or say that the abomination of desolation has already happened. It happened with Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, 200 years before Jesus came on the scene. Jesus said, when you see it, he was talking about something yet future. Or there are those who will say, well, it happened with Titus when he came into Jerusalem. Listen, Titus did not desecrate the temple. He destroyed the temple. Titus did not go into the temple and set himself up as God, to be worshipped as God. 
So I think that clearly we can see that this is yet future. So much is mentioned about that there's going to be a temple that's going to be called the Tribulation Temple. A third temple is going to be rebuilt. So you go to Jerusalem, you see the Dome of the Rock that is there, and you think, how's the temple going to be built? Here's the interesting thing. When we go to Jerusalem, oftentimes we'll go to a place that's called the Temple Institute. And for years, the temple is being built even as we speak. You say, what do you mean? Maybe not the building, but there's a group of Jews, Orthodox Jews, that are dedicated. So when the temple is built, that the sacrifices can continue. And you can go into the Temple Institute, and you can see that they have the furnishings all ready to go. They have, you know, the, the, all the things, the, the pans, the pots. The, um, they have the priestly garments, uh, the high priest garments that are built. You can see they're all ready to go. They're training young men into, uh, you know, sacrifices, how to do it. It's absolutely incredible. They're ready to go. Matter of fact, you can go into the old city of Jerusalem and there they have the seven-branch menorah that is there under glass that you can look at that's all ready to go into the temple. Now, here's the interesting thing. We talked about this when we were going through, you know, uh, Ezra and uh, the book of Ezra. When Zerubbabel came back and when Joshua the high priest had rebuilt the temple, they pushed all the stones away. They made the, the altar first of sacrifice before they even built the building so they can do the sacrifices. And I said, don't be surprised that maybe the altar will be placed first before buildings even built. When we went to the Temple Institute the last time, they said, we can do sacrifices without a building. So they're getting all ready for that. So the Antichrist is going to come along, and somehow he's going to make a peace treaty that seems like they're going to be able to rebuild their temple. They're all ready to go. They're set to go. They're training people. Here's the thing to keep in mind as well, that most people in Israel do not want a temple. The reason they don't want a temple is because on that temple mount, they say the Dome of the Rock's got to go. So I'm going to show you some slides. So let's throw the first slide up. And this is from the Mount of Olives. That's the Dome of the Rock. Most of you have seen pictures of Jerusalem. That is looking across the Kidron Valley on Mount Moriah and what is called the Temple Mount. So it's on that mount where the first temple was and the second temple was. And the, and the Orthodox Jews say that that Dome of the Rock, which is the third holiest Muslim site in the world, has got to go if a temple is going to be built. Well, most Jews don't want a temple built because they know that if the Dome of the Rock goes, that every Muslim in the world is going to come riding down on Jerusalem. Second of all, what is the world going to say if a priest takes a lamb up there and slits its throat and sacrifices that lamb? In our, our day of, you know, uh, animal, you know, I don't know, this and that, and you know how it is. We love our animals, but, you know, we got people today that want to get rid of our, you know, Wyoming beef and Colorado beef and cows, and it's like, don't mess with my beef. But... <laughs> We just live in that world. So that's the problem. That's the challenge. So what the Antichrist is going to do somehow as he comes on the scene, remember that he comes riding on a white horse, conquering on the conquer. He has a bow, but not an arrow. He comes with peaceful means. 
he's going to show his true colors at this point halfway through the tribulation period that we will see in chapter 12 and chapter 13. So here's the Dome of the Rock. What we're looking at is the Temple Mount. It is interesting. I want to show it to you as well while we got it. And we, when we stand on the Mount of Olives here, when we go to Jerusalem, that you're looking at Mount Moriah there. I don't know if this is going to do it. But um, we can go back to the other one, Jerry. But as you look at, look at the flow of the bedrock there, and it heads north, that's Mount Moriah. You say, what's Mount Moriah? Mount Moriah, Abraham, Genesis chapter 22. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the mount that I will show you and offer him as a sacrifice. And so we know the story how it was the wood of the sacrifice that was on Isaac's back. Isaac wasn't a little boy. It's believed he was about 30 years old at that time. And there's Abraham with a knife in one hand and in the fire in the other. And as they're walking up Mount Moriah, that this hill here, this mountain, that it was Isaac that he asked his father. He said, hey, I got the wood on my back. You got the fire and the knife, but where's the sacrifice? And remember the response of Abraham? He said that God will provide himself a sacrifice. They get to the top of Mount Moriah, and when they get to the top of Mount Moriah, he builds a, an altar. He's about ready to plunge the knife into Isaac, and the Lord comes along and says, Abraham, stop, stop. Now I know that you love me. And Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. So many guides will tell you that the Dome of the Rock is the traditional site where Abraham was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. And I don't believe that's where it was. Because that's about two-thirds of the way up Mount Moriah. And you remember that Jerusalem's been destroyed and rebuilt several times. And they cut into, I don't know what happened there. So, so if we can go back to the first one. There we go. So they cut into Mount Moriah. And as they did, they built the Temple Mount. And, and as they cut into the mountain there, underneath the Dome of the Rock is a piece of Mount Moriah. And it's all, you know, jagged and this big rock that's there. But I think that Abraham took him to the top of the mountain. And at the top of the mountain here, and again, I don't know if I can get this to work, um, TV screens nowadays. I can't get anything. It's great when technology works. See you guys over there while I'm pointing? Is it? All right. Well, I'll just leave it alone. On the very right of, um, very right of the picture is, is the top of Mount Moriah. Solomon had a quarry up there. And that's where he built the, the, the stones for the first temple. And they also used it for the second temple. On the north face inside of that quarry, it made the face of a skull. And they called it Golgotha, the place of the skull, where Jesus, where did he provide for you and for me? On top of Mount Moriah. This is the place where the Lord's going to provide. So I don't believe that the Dome of the Rock is where the place where Abraham, first of all, was going to sacrifice uh, Isaac. You can go now to the second picture. So this is the eastern gate, and this is the old city wall. This is built on top of this. The Turks built that wall. That's a Muslim uh, the, um, cemetery that is there. And so that's the Dome of the Rock, the third holiest site in the Muslim world. Go ahead and go to the next slide. 
And as we look at the next slide, on the other side, that's the eastern side, you're on the Mount of Olives, and you're looking at the old city of Jerusalem. You're looking across the Kidron Valley, the old city of Jerusalem, and this is the western wall. Many of you have seen this picture. Those stones are the Herodian stones that fit perfectly together. It's like a hairline fracture. There's no mortar between the stones. They don't know how they did it. There are stones underneath the foundational stones. This is the retaining wall that surrounded the temple. There are foundational stones so huge, there's no crane in the world that can lift them. They don't know how they got it from the quarry down to the Temple Mount. And as we continue on here, but there's something interesting. Here's some research that is being done. There's the Dome of the Rock. So everyone thinks that that's where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. Also, they believe that's where the Holy of Holies was in the first and second temple. That's where the Ark of the Covenant sat, where the high priest would go in behind the curtain and, and, and he would, on the Day of Atonement, make atonement for the nation. That's why they're saying that the Dome of the Rock has got to go. But there's something interesting. Under this little gazebo there, or this little dome, is an original bedrock of of Mount Moriah, and it is flat, and it's interesting that the Muslims call it the Dome of the Spirits, the Dome of the Tablets. Dr. Asher Kaufman, a geophysicist since the 80s, has done research up there, and his conclusion is, is that's where the Holy of Holies was. That's where the temple was. He said the, the, it wasn't underneath where the Dome of the Rock is because it's all jagged. They couldn't put the, the, the Ark of the Covenant there. But it was here on this flat piece as we go to the next picture. You see that it's underneath. That's original bedrock of Mount Moriah that was chiseled out that they believe that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And as we go to the next picture, here is an open field. So could it be... Just speculation as we think about it. Here he's told to measure the temple, but he's told not to measure the outer court because it's been given to the Gentiles. Could it be Dr. Asher Kaufman is convinced that that's where the temple stood, and if you go directly to the east, there's the eastern gate. And there's ancient writings how the priests would look out the door of the temple and be able to look through the eastern gate. And, and, and as just if we can leave it on the whatever. So, um, but there's an open field that is there. So could it be that the Antichrist, that he makes a peace treaty to where the Jews can come up and worship at their temple, and then there's a wall, and then the outer part has been given either the Dome of the Rock or could it be that the Antichrist, we know in Daniel chapter 11, is going to set up his headquarters, but it's been given to the Gentiles? Speculation. Fascinating, isn't it? But it could be that that's where the future temple is going to stand. Let's go ahead and go to the next, Jerry. Thank you. There's an overview. See that big field? So right there in the very corner, um, on the left-hand side of the screen, towards the bottom, that, that uh, dark dome, that's the Dome of the Spirits. So they got plenty of room that they could build a temple. But we don't know for sure. But that's just speculation. Don't measure it out of court because it's been given to the Gentiles. So it could include some kind of the Dome of the Rock staying there, 
There's other speculation, perhaps, that includes Ezekiel 38, 39. We don't have time to go into it. Jerry, can you go uh, to the last one, the menorah? And that's what I want to show you. That's what's all ready to go. You know the interesting thing about this, good bedtime reading, if you want to, you know, just read on these things, that they believe that was the size of the menorah in, in, the, in the temple. And, of course, in the book of Exodus, that there was two individuals that were told um, to, you know, that were given special wisdom, um, Hoya Lab and somebody else, I can't think of his name right now, um, that they were given special wisdom to build the furnishings and they would build the Ark of the Covenant, the showbread table, the altar of incense, the, the seven-branch menorah. And the seven-branch menorah, as you read the book of Exodus, was to be made of all gold. So for some reason, they come to the conclusion in all their studies that that was the size of the seven-branch menorah and they can't figure out how to make a seven-branch menorah made of pure gold because the weight of the arms would collapse. So this one actually has stainless steel in the middle of it overlaid with gold. Interesting, isn't it? So just a little bedtime reading if you want to read Dr. Asher Kaufman's, you know. He is a geophysicist and those kinds of things. But it's all ready to go. So here's the thing. The temple's going to be rebuilt. They're getting ready for it. And here's what I think. If we're that close seeing that the temple's ready to be built, how close are we to the rapture of the church? We don't have to see the temple. And I don't think we are going to see the temple before the rapture of the church. There's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church. Remember that Jesus said, when you begin to see these things come to pass, Look up and rejoice for your redemption draws near. You can turn that off, Jerry. Thank you so much. And, and I hope that kind of give gives you a little bit of a, a visual of where the temple's going to be. Here's the thing also to be watching, because Israel is the epicenter of end-time prophecy. Then in 1948, President Truman was used by the Lord to, to approve the new state of Israel. Matter of fact, we looked at it in Isaiah chapter 66. They came in with a piece of paper and it had the Jewish state and President Truman said, they gotta have a name, so he put Israel, the state of Israel. He put the time on the bottom and the date. Can a nation be born in one day? When you get a birth certificate for your child who's born, there's three pieces of information, the date, the time of the birth, and the name. Can a nation be born in one day? So we see that the day after they declared independence, of course, they were attacked by seven Arab nations. God has protected them. God is working. And then recently, just a few months ago, that our president, whether you like him or not, He's being used by God for his purposes, declared Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Very significant. Do not be surprised if we start seeing a focus on the Temple Mount and news surrounding the Temple Mount. Israel, the nation itself, the Bible prophecy teachers and scholars will tell you is kind of like the hour hand. Jerusalem is the minute hand. The Temple Mount, that 35 acres, is the second hand. And the focus is going to be on that. And we know that that is going to be the center of controversy, even as it is today. And we know that there's all kinds of debate and what to do. 
but there will be a temple that will be built. It's all ready to go. The Antichrist, I believe, will come, and he will set up a, a covenant, a treaty, to where they'll be able to build it. When you see these things begin to come to pass, what do we do, folks? Look up and rejoice, for your redemption draws near. I really believe that the coming of the Lord is close and that he can come at any time. We don't know the day or the hour, but we are told as his people to be watching, to be waiting, to be looking, to occupy till he comes. We live in very unique times. Don't go to sleep. Don't go to sleep and don't buy into those who are saying that we don't need to look for the coming of the Lord. It is a commandment, not a suggestion, that we are to be looking for the return of the Lord. And Jesus says, I come at a time that you do not know. And as we've dis discussed that, I get excited when I read about these things and, and knowing that John write these things down because they must come to pass. So the Lord's coming for us. Amen, church? He's coming for us, so be looking for him. And what does it mean for us? John says that he who has this hope purifies himself. If you really believe that the Lord could come back, the one who died for me and loves me, shed his blood for me, that perhaps he can come back tonight or tomorrow or any time, and tomorrow isn't promised to any of us, that should affect the way every area of our lives, how we live. Keep looking for the Lord. Keep looking to him. Listen, this world is not your hope. How I long, especially for you young people, to realize this. You know, the Antichrist is going to come along and he's going to say, I can deliver you peace and utopia, and he is not going to be able to deliver. He's going to turn the world into chaos, into war, into death. The enemy comes along. The Antichrist is going to be directly influenced by Satan himself. And the enemy comes along and says, I can deliver to you happiness. I can deliver to you fulfillment. I can deliver to you whatever it is that you want. Take it. But he cannot deliver, folks. And he will lead you into depression and defeat and death. Please, I urge you. You know, I was reading Paul. He's got one more, I beg you, church. He always did that. I urge you, I beg you, please, don't look to the world. Because the world is not your hope. And the world's going to come to a disastrous end. And I don't say that to put undue burden on you. But the Lord desires not only to give you life, but life abundantly a blessed life and of peace and joy. And remember, as we talked about on Sunday, he has a plan for you. And even as Paul would write, that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, the wonderful things that the Lord has prepared for those who believe in him and love him. Listen, love him, look to him, live for him. Because the Lord is coming back. And we belong to a kingdom that will last forever. And at the end of the seven years, Jesus is going to come back, and we're going to come back with him. The rapture of the church is when he comes for his church. The second coming is when he comes with his church, and we're going to rule and reign with him. And then we're going to be in the new Jerusalem that Abraham looked for, that city whose builder and maker was built by God. And we'll dwell with the Lord forever. That's our future. Don't live 
for the world. Live for Christ. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time, and we're able to look at some slides and, and um, get a visual, but we know that there's going to be a temple, um, that it's going to be a tribulation temple, and it's going to be desecrated by the Antichrist, and we'll talk about that. But, Lord, as we see these things coming to pass, Lord, I pray that um, it would excite us as, as we see things taking place right before our very eyes that point to the soon return of Jesus Christ. And I pray at Calvary Chapel here that it would excite us and it would cause us to live for you. And Lord, I thank you that we can be blessed and benefited by going through the book of Revelation, that it stirs our hearts. It doesn't scare us, but it prepares us for what you have for us, to occupy till you come, to be watching, to be waiting, to be serving, to be faithful, not to live for this world. So while we just got a minute, listen, if you're here tonight, and maybe the Lord brought you here, but you know you've been distracted by other things. You've been distracted prioritizing the things of the world, involved in carnality, maybe involved in sin, Please turn away, repent. Turn to the Lord. He loves you. He loves you so much. And if you're here and you're not right with God, get right with him. Because first of all, tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. And he can come at any time. We don't know the day or the hour. But we are rushing towards the return of the Lord. And I pray that if you haven't made a commitment to Jesus Christ, that is to say, I need to confess that I'm a sinner and come to the cross and ask for forgiveness and to believe that Jesus, you rose from the grave because you're speaking to my heart right now and surrender your heart to him and your life to him. Do that now. Today is the day of salvation. Please don't pass this moment up. You can't save yourself. And coming to church and listening to a Bible study can't save you. Only the cross of Jesus Christ, him crucified, and then the living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus. He's alive. He proved he's the son of God because there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Call out to him. He says, come. Come in faith. You can pray sincerely where you are. Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I confess that I am a sinner. Forgive me and I believe you rose from the grave of your life speaking to my heart and I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for hearing my prayer and this new beginning and bringing me into the family of God for saving me. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life, in Jesus' name.